Our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word is 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 to 27. But before we turn to it, or rather as we turn to it in some detail in a moment, we would do well to remember something. And that is this. David was the greatest king in Israelite history. He wasn't perfect, as we've seen. and Despite moments of failure, though, so far, David's been described in Samuel as righteous and faithful, kind and good and successful in all that he does. He's been the true friend to Jonathan. He's been the loyal servant to Saul. He's been the sweet singing psalmist of Israel. David was a remarkably good man, brothers and sisters. One of the best Israel ever produced. I think it's fair to say that of what we've seen so far in First and Second Samuel. But what's even more significant than that, of course, is what's in fact behind a lot of that, and it is that David had the Lord's anointing. David was the king God chose for himself. David was marked by the presence of Yahweh's spirit. David's great, great achievements had been as a result of the fact that the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So here's what I don't. Here's what you really can't have missed in our study of First and Second Samuel so far. I don't think David was God's king. His kingdom was God's kingdom. And as we considered last week, when we come to Second Samuel 11, we are at the height of that kingdom. And if all that's right, if David was God's king ruling over God's kingdom, then at this point, as we turn the page into 2 Samuel 11, you might even say, do you think, you might even say that David was something of a new Adam. That as Adam had been placed in the garden to have dominion over it, So had David been placed in the promised land. That as the Lord had been so intimately involved with Adam, so had the Lord been with David. That even as Adam and Eve were the image of God in creation, the ones who literally show God as they exercise the authority given to them, So too was David to rule in the land the Lord had given his people. Why? That he might ultimately extend the blessings of God to all creation. After all, the Lord had promised that David's dynasty would continue, that his son would build a temple for the Lord, that the seed of David would reign forever. And you remember in chapter 7 how David prayed in response to what had been spoken to him by Nathan saying in verse 19 of chapter 7, this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. 
David saw the significance of what was being promised. He understood that by the grace of God, he was at the center of God's work in human history, and he rightly was overwhelmed at the thought. Might you say it? Here's the new Adam. Here's the king. Which, of course, now means that here's the one who, as he exercises his dominion, must remember one thing above all else. That we've said it from the start of 1 Samuel. That the ultimate king is the Lord. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, Samuel said. Way back in 1 Samuel chapter 12. If you will follow the Lord, your God, it will be well. Might we say this? I think we should say it. But then as soon as we say it, we know it's coming, don't we? It is a familiar story. That despite all God had given him, and all God had done for him, you know what comes Maybe even what has to come. David falls. That's what's happening in 2 Samuel chapter 11, brothers and sisters. And oh, it is a spectacular, terrible fall. The esteemed Hebrew scholar Robert Alter suggests, quote, the story of David and Bathsheba is the great turning point of the whole David story. He's right, of course, but I'd go further, at least in this way, to say that I think in biblical history, I think 2 Samuel 11 is comparable to none less than Genesis 3. And I, now it's not that it's exactly the same, of course. David was already a sinner. His certainly isn't the introduction of sin to the human race. But 2 Samuel 11 is the turning point of the story of David and his kingdom. Just as Genesis 3 was the turning point for the human race, things will never be the same again. And Last week I proposed that Israel was at her high point under David's kingly rule. Now begins the descent. Now, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 are universally considered one of the finest pieces of writing to come down to us from the ancient world. So my hope is to engage this text in a way that uh, that preserves its literary qualities. I'm not going to create headings over different parts of it or disassemble it and try to talk about it thematically. I want it to stay in our minds as a story. But there's still a lot to say. So... I'll give you some divisions in the text, but I want to do it as I try to track the story with you. In a limited way, you'll feel my frustration as the time just tick ticks away, and there's all kinds of stuff I'm not saying. But I'm going to try to draw out aspects of this and offer you a few reflections, and it's not going to be short. Fair warning. 
but I hope it will be compelling. We begin in verses 1 to 5. Verse 1 sets the scene. If you can look at the text in front of you right away, you see then that the military conflicts that we considered in 2 Samuel 10 are what provide the background now to what happens here circumstantially. So verse 1 sets the scene, and in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, the ESV translates, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now at the end of chapter 10 from last week, if you remember, the Ammonites had retreated to Rabbah, their capital city. And here I'm, I'm sorry to move so rapidly into small details, but there are some translational challenges in verse 1, almost uniquely in the whole chapter. Verse 1 has challenges in interpreting it. In the spring of the year is literally at the return of the year. That's the one thing. Then there's also a debate around whether the word that's translated kings there in verse 1 is in fact the Hebrew word for kings or whether it's maybe the word for messengers because the manuscript evidence isn't consistent. There's only a difference of one silent consonant between the two things in Hebrew. And either way you go with that decision, then I'll tell you the words to battle that are there in the English aren't there in the Hebrew at all. So what's going on? Well, I think this verse is a reference then either, if it's kings, to the Syrian kings that we saw in chapter 10, or if it's messengers to David's messengers that we read about in chapter 10. Either way, I think the first part of verse 1 tells us the course of events that had begun a year earlier was about to be resumed. So I'd suggest translating it something like, at the return of the year, at the time that the kings, or maybe the messengers, had gone out, referring to what happened in chapter 10, at the same time the following year, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And I explain all that, not because I think that's the most fascinating thing in this passage, but because you will find lots of comments that focus on verse 1 to make the point about how David wasn't doing what kings are supposed to do, you see, and evidently in the springtime, and that that's really the genesis of David's failure. I just don't think that's clear from verse 1. The picture is that here's David sending Joab and his soldiers back to the Ammonites. If anything, the important bit, I think, might be more in the verb sent there. The authority of the king is expressed in the word sent, and 12 times in this chapter that verb will be used. As David desperately tries to use his authority to deal with his own sin, so... Keep your eye out for that word in particular. So the army's being sent by David to deal with the Ammonites. And then somewhat surprisingly, the scene shifts back to Jerusalem as signaled by the end of verse 1. It says, but David remained at Jerusalem. And now here again, a lot of people read that statement as a failure on David's part. 
and maybe they're right and I'm wrong, but I, I'm just not sure about that. David stayed back in the last chapter when he sent Joab. This is evidently going to be a long siege of the city of Rabbah. We know that because it's only then near the end of chapter 12, which is the bookend to this whole section, where you can see that Joab lets David know when the victory is finally getting close, and then David goes out. I'm just not sure David's failure was in deciding to stay in Jerusalem per se. Though, of course, the circumstance matters. And it will become evident that David's mind and heart are sure not where they need to be. As his men are out on military assignment. and So we do pick up on some of that a little further into the passage. But I, just, I start with that note because I... I don't think it's so easy to understand why David does what David does. But the stage is set now. And we are surprised, if I'm reading this right, we're surprised. We're surprised that the narrator chooses now to keep us in Jerusalem as we come to verse 2. He says, David stayed in Jerusalem. Why say that? He stayed in Jerusalem last time. Well... I have to read verses 2 to 5. I'm not going to read most of the rest of the text, but I am going to read these verses again. Verses 2 to 5. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And brothers and sisters, the brevity of that account is brutal. The action is quick. Here's how one commentator puts this, quote, the verbs rush as the passion of David rushed. He sent, he took, he lay. The royal deed of self-indulgence does not take very long. There is no adornment to the action. The woman then gets some verbs. She returned. She conceived. The action is so stark. There is nothing but action. There is no conversation. There is no hint of caring, of affection, of love. Only lust. David does not call her by name, does not even speak to her. At the end of the encounter, she is only the woman. The verb that finally counts is conceived, but the telling verb is he took her. Now, do you remember what Samuel said when Samuel warned the people way back when they first asked for a king? Samuel warned them. I think it's 1 Samuel 8. I didn't write it down. Samuel warned them that a king who takes is a king like all the nations. Precisely what David had been chosen not to be. 
right? And verse 4 says, he took Bathsheba. And thus, David, who for so long had refused to take power, but waited patiently for it to be given to him, falls. Which I think is exactly the point the narrator wants us to see. Listen to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, that it was a delight to the eyes, compare 2 Samuel 11, David saw a woman bathing. And then in the Hebrew it says, she was very good in appearance. The emphasis is that she was beautiful to look at. Then back to Genesis 3. What happens after Eve sees the tree is good and that it's a delight to the eyes? You know. She took of its fruit and ate. 2 Samuel 11, verse 4. It's right there in front of us. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. David did what what Adam and Eve did, brothers and sisters. He was ruled by his desires rather than by God's word. There's so much that could be said. Let me make only a few comments I think are important. First comment, God's law was unambiguous. Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. David knew the law. And David knew Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah. The messengers told him that it was 100% unambiguous. That wasn't enough to stop David. And brothers and sisters, the boundaries of Sexual morality given to us in the Bible are not to be despised or disregarded. There's a lot more on that subject that can be said, but you know Paul's exhortation in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. The Bible teaches that our our sexual desires were intended, though warped by sin and Desperately difficult to reign in. That our sexual desires were intended for the self-giving union of a man and a woman in marriage and the procreation of children in that context, if it is the Lord's will. But instead, sex has been turned into a selfish pleasure to be taken rather than given. David should have fled, not stared. So should we, friends. Second comment. Hear me on this one. There's nothing here. There is nothing here to suggest Bathsheba acted provocatively or was somehow being indiscreet. You have to hear this one because there's some really influential commentators who suggest this. I think it's wrong. 
It was the elevation of David's palace that made her visible from that height. I think we should understand that her place of bathing was otherwise private, was probably some distance, in fact, from the palace. I'll try and make that argument in a moment. In fact, if you look again here at the end of verse 4, there's even more. It says in the parentheses at the end of verse 4, now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Meaning, what? Meaning that according to the laws of the book of Leviticus and the symbolic clean and unclean system that you find there, you may know one of the states of uncleanliness was a woman's, a woman's monthly menstrual period in Leviticus. Why is this comment here in verse 4? Well, it probably is in part to establish that it sure was David who impregnated her, given the timing here. But I think maybe the real reason is to make clear that Bathsheba wasn't taking some kind of luxurious spa-style bath in the sun on her roof. It was a ritual cleansing. Far from being a matter of immodesty, her bathing was a matter of holiness. Do you get it? The woman in this text is pursuing holiness and King David is pursuing wickedness. Which then brings me to my third comment, which is disturbing. So, brace yourselves. I think from verses 2 and 3, we reasonably can deduce that David could not see Bathsheba well enough to know who she was for sure. He can see she's beautiful. And he sends messengers to find out who she is. Why does he want to know that? Now one of his messengers says to him, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And you sort of hear it in English there, but I think the Hebrew meaning there is is is, is clear. It's something like, it is indeed Bathsheba, David, Eliam's daughter and Uriah's wife. Look, at, David knows who Eliam and Uriah are. If you go to chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, you can flip there if you want. You don't have to, but you can. Chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, and you begin at verse 8 of chapter 23, you see this list of the, quote, mighty men of David. And Eliam is then at, towards the end of the chapter. He's listed in verse 34. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, it says. Uriah's there in verse 39. Uriah the Hittite. Chapter 23. I'm not going to go into all the detail. These mighty men are those who had distinguished themselves in some way around David, probably in the course of battle, mostly. And it would seem that at least some, or even a lot of them, go way back with David. So verse 13 of chapter 23 suggests that many of them were known to David as far back as the cave of Adullam, if you can remember that from 1 Samuel. That would likely be the case with Eliam. Why? Because he was the son of Ahithophel, it says. Who's that? Well, you're going to learn later in 2 Samuel chapter 16 that Ahithophel is an esteemed counselor of David. This family has a long history with David. That's what I'm trying to say to you. In other words, Bathsheba's from a family that's close to David's court. 
had been for a long time. And you start looking into the math of all this, and though I can't quite work out all the details to my own satisfaction, it's pretty clear. You begin to realize Bathsheba is probably about 20 years old. Maybe 25 if you push it. David's at least 50. And now just think about that. That would mean it's at least probable, I think, that David knew Bathsheba from a young age. I mean, her father, her grandfather would have often been at the palace. She was even married to one of David's mighty men. So then, now the form of the answer that David receives from one of his messengers, does it make sense? Sure. Oh, you know who that is, David. That's Bathsheba. Is the reason David's response to that answer that he takes Bathsheba because he knows that she trusts him? David calls for her. What she? Of course she comes. This is David. And you got to remember, David's not just the king. David's also the psalmist. David's the trusted teacher in spiritual matters. David at times acts like a priest. I mean, he, he offers sacrifices. He dances before the ark in the ephod, the priestly garment. I mean, what did he say to her? If he even had to say anything. Do you get it? David uses his authority, his political and spiritual authority, because they're linked in the king of Israel. And he takes advantage of a young woman who has trusted him, I am assuming, all her life. And then you you heard the rest of the chapter. David goes on to use his position to try to manipulate this faithful man. And then when that fails, to murder him. Right? And I'm sort of giving you this key point before we've actually made it to the end there because it works here now. Yes, David committed adultery and murder. That's clear as a bell. But can you begin to see that those are the subset of David's primary sin here? David abused the office and position entrusted to him by God. Here's David suddenly beginning to function like the kings of all the other nations who took from their people to satisfy their own desires. Here's David suddenly seeing himself as above the law becoming a law unto himself rather than being the king who was submissive to the law of the Lord and the words of the prophet. Here's David suddenly acting in ways radically inconsistent with the behavior of a true covenant king of Yahweh. You see? This is why we find it all so unsettling. Because it's David doing it. It's God's chosen one. Hang on to that thought if you can. I'm gonna, I want to try to come back to that at the very end of the sermon. Now, I just gotta, we got to fly now. Look at verses 6 to 13, or just consider them. We can't even read them. Bathsheba's pregnant. Notice then how in verse 5, Bathsheba's the one who sent. <laughs> Tells David that. 
David's beginning to see he's not in control of events. But instead of that, then leading David to consider acknowledging what he's done or taking some responsibility for the consequences of it. No, David tries to manage it. David tries to stay in control. So he develops plan A. He sent word to Joab. He's acting like the king. He sent word to Joab to give Uriah, to have Uriah sent back to Jerusalem. In verse 6, he then asks these questions that are just David trying to make everything seem as normal as possible. Literally in verse 7, he asks about shalom, peace. Three times. David doesn't care anything about shalom. David wants a cover-up, so he orders Uriah to go to his home. That is, to the home where Bathsheba is, Uriah's home. And he uses wording that's probably a veiled euphemism for sexual relations. Why? Because David wanted Uriah to have sex with his wife. He even sends a lavish meal for Uriah and Bathsheba. What David cannot do is control Uriah, who doesn't go home, but instead spends the night with the men nearby the palace. So David asks him, why you do? Why did you do that? And look at Uriah's response in verse 11. He says, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? Uriah knows what David wants him to do. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And you know what should have happened then? And it's Calvin that pointed this out when I read Calvin on this text. Though I don't like everything Calvin says about this text. But this point, Calvin is right. That should have crumpled David. That reply should have left David's spirit in tatters. Now, it's quite commonly suggested, actually, at this point, that Uriah knows more than he's letting on. Because, I mean, it's not as though no one in Jerusalem is aware of what David's done, right? Obviously, there's messengers back and forth. There's people bringing Bathsheba to the palace. There's people sending Bathsheba's word back to David that David's pregnant. It's definitely possible that Uriah had heard something. Maybe David doesn't know whether Uriah's heard anything or not. You can read his response to David on two levels. It could be simply Uriah's noble character, innocently naive. It could be Uriah's careful in how he speaks in this issue to rebuke David. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's both, some, some element of both of those things. I mean, why, for example, mention the ark here? Is it in part to remind David of the terms of the covenant that are right inside of it? I don't know. I mean, you can think through every, it's part of the brilliance of this narrative. You could think through everything Uriah says with that question in mind. I don't know. I'm not sure David knew. What's clear is plan A failed. So David turns to plan B, which is really just a kind of a variation on a theme. David figures if he can get Uriah drunk then maybe Uriah will forget about all these noble standards that he has, but turns out Uriah drunk is better than David sober. Famous quote about this peasant. 
plan B fails. Uriah still doesn't go to his house, still doesn't go to his wife. And look, at we don't know what would have happened had David taken any moment in this entire sequence to trust God, to come clean, to confess his wrongdoing. Neither did David. Now, I grant you that the, the stipulations of the law around adultery are pretty severe. But he is the king. It's not a clear point what would happen exactly to him. The point is that David doesn't do that. Doing what's right isn't about being in control of what happens. It's about trusting God. David's not doing that. I mean, you've noticed by now there's no direct reference to the Lord in 2 Samuel 11 until the last sentence. Why? Because through all of these days, David disregards God. Right? The king that David was, he keeps sending for things. He attempts to take control of the course of events himself. His deceitful heart deludes him into thinking that he has the wisdom and the power to protect himself from the consequences of his wickedness. And the only consequences that seem to matter to David have to do with his behavior becoming known publicly. Does that make sense? Oh, friends, listen to me. Here's my pastoral word for you at this point. Be on guard against putting your consciences to sleep like that. Christian, when we've done something wrong, the right course of action is never to attempt a cover-up that won't work in the long run. God will finally bring every deed to account, the scriptures say. Look at verses 14 now, 14 through 25. We're just going to race through. David's desperate now. Now it's plan C. Plan C is chilling, if simple. All that matters is that Uriah die. I'm not even sure David's being entirely logical at this point, right? He sends Uriah's death warrant with Uriah, for starters. And the instructions then that he gave to Joab show he sure wasn't thinking clearly. Verse 15, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Well, Joab sees that David's plan seems a bit unthought through or hasty. The army, with just the single exception of Uriah, would then withdraw and somehow not arouse serious suspicion. So Joab, we'll see, improves on David's plan to the cost of several other lives. I mean, just to pause here, friends, this, this is meant to horrify you. The, the lustful glance from that rooftop a few weeks earlier has now led to a murder plot that will spiral out of control beyond David's intentions even. One step after another, David has not trusted God, has not done what's right. Now he's calling for the execution of an innocent man to protect himself. This is the same David who had refused to shed blood to defend himself earlier in Samuel. Remember that? So verse 16, 
Joab now, he knows what to do. He assigns Uriah to the place where Joab knew there were valiant men, meaning on the other side, and the men of the city came out. I don't know what they did to get the men of the city to come out, whatever it was. They fought with Joab. Some of the servants of David, the text says, among the people, notice how it's the servants of David. The servants of David fell. And then we learn Uriah the Hittite also died. It wasn't just Uriah. In the course of battle, several are killed with him. This was the price of carrying out the spirit of David's intentions, his instructions. Now all that's left is to get that good news to David, right? So Joab prepares his messenger. He coaches his messenger. And I don't know, did you pick up on this? David's just lost a number of soldiers. Joab warns the messenger that David might fly into a rage over this. So then to soothe the king, the messenger is supposed to inform David about another casualty, one of David's mighty men. Why should another death pacify the king's anger? I mean, who does this remind you of, brothers and sisters? Who else flew into a rage and sought the death of his enemy? Saul. I mean, do you see that? What's our narrator maybe not so subtly communicating to us? Dear friends, that David in himself was no better than Saul. In fact, I'd argue David has now become far worse than Saul ever was. Like Saul, David has turned his world upside down. Instead of mourning the death of a mighty man, he celebrates. Instead of being concerned about the course of the battle, he's concerned only to rid himself of an obstacle. The messenger delivers his message. The messenger even alters the message, if you notice that. He wants to avoid the whole problem. He doesn't even wait for the king's reaction, and then he could you know, talk about Uriah. No, he just makes sure to include what he obviously got was the important piece. Uriah the Hittite's dead too, David. Now listen, you want to see what sin does, brothers and sisters? Look closely at verse 25, because this is crucial. It's going to tie in with the very end of the chapter. We're almost done. Hang in there. David's response to the messenger from Joab is chilling. Verse 25, David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage him. Encourage him. The great King David is manifestly happy that Joab had allowed several men to be killed so long as Uriah was included. He cold-heartedly accepted deaths that he had caused. The king who brought Mephibosheth to eat at his table sent Uriah to the grave. How can this be? Part of the key to that is in the language that David uses. The ESV translates it there. 
Do not let this matter displease you. But literally the king's message to Joab was, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. David's heart had now been blind. David's heart had now blinded him to the evil of what he'd done. His conscience is seared. Uriah's been murdered. Other servants of David are sacrificed. But don't see this thing as evil, Joab, because your king doesn't see it as evil. David's now refusing to see the evil thing that he had done as being evil. And that right there is the impact of unchecked sin in our lives, brothers and sisters. Do you hear me saying that? When sin goes unchecked in our lives, it will lead us there. What does Paul say in Romans 6, verse 16? Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 5, verse 20, condemns those who call evil good and good evil. Do you know why? Because the Lord never does that. And so we come then in the end of verses 26 and 27, and we can have no idea what Bathsheba is thinking. I don't know. All verse 26 says is that when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. What we know is there's just one more move to make on David's part, right? And so for the last time in this chapter, the king sent, verse 27, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son, which means we're at least nine months down the road. Right? Nine months is a long time. Well, at least, kind of. I did it. David perhaps thought to himself, everything's okay. Uriah was dead. Bathsheba's become my wife. The son that was Born has the appearance of legitimacy and evidently, friends, David, the sweet singing psalmist of Israel, the celebrator of Yahweh's sovereignty over creation, seems to imagine that his puny and deceptive moves can somehow conceal his sin from God. Do you relate to that? The account, of course, then concludes with the devastating closing statement. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, you've got to see this. Literally, the narrator's closing words there echo David's message to Joab in verse 25. Exactly. David had said in verse 25, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. Literally, the ending verse of this chapter closes with, But the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. It may not have been evil in the eyes of David at this point, but evil it was.
because the Lord sees it as such. Just because evil runs on in its successful course doesn't mean God isn't watching it. David's sending is over now. Next week, it's the Lord's turn. Chapter 12, verse 1. Look, just look at that verse. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He's the real king. And brothers and sisters, I know, I know, time's gone, totally gone, long gone. I have a half page more because I just want to give you two closing reflections on this chapter. And if that upsets you, you can leave in the singing of the final hymn and save a few minutes if you want. (laughs) Two closing reflections on this chapter, if I can. Number one, what is this? I mean, what is this saying to us? Number one, David was not the worst man to ever have lived. I mean, I started by saying David was the greatest king in Israelite history. I started that way because I think David falls here in a way that evokes the fall of the first couple in the garden. So I want you to conclude that this story is here to be a demonstration of human nature, of human sinfulness. Why did David do this? I do not have the full answer to that question. But do I dare say in my heart that I would never act like David did? I can't. can't. All I can pray is lead me not into temptation and deliver me from evil. War with David next week. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because if you do, this is the only way I go. But let that also then inform how it is that we think about other people. Could go different directions, but let me just say this, that all human beings no matter how elevated their status in the eyes of those around them, no matter what special calling they may have received from the Lord, all human beings are still fallen creatures this side of the new creation capable of the most unimaginable iniquities. Which is why Psalm 118 verse 8 says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Yep. That's reflection one. Reflection two, then, I think the reason this account is so deeply disturbing, or at least it is to me, is that it's not just some good king who did all this. It was God's chosen king. And while I know I cannot make this point fully without next week's chapter to inform it, I do feel the need to end on this. In chapter 11, we read the story David's wickedness. It is in chapter 12 that we will see that the purposes of God are not thwarted by David's sin. No, David's fall cannot undo God's promise. 
Those promises will never be forgotten. They will not be nullified. Oh, the consequences of David's sin will be severe. We'll see that. We'll be seeing that for weeks. But brothers and sisters, the good news is that the grace of God is even more spectacular than the failure of David. And even though, even as David's failures then will be multiplied and expanded by those who follow him on the throne, the prophets begin then to point forward to a king from David's line who would be known as what? As the righteous branch. This king would be a person who would not only reign with wisdom and do what is just and right, as Jeremiah 23 puts it, he would also be a person known by this remarkable title from Jeremiah 23, verse 6. The Lord is our righteousness. What we've just read in 2 Samuel 11 is part of that story. God's purposes move forward despite David's sin. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Matthew says in his genealogy. Not many women that make it into the genealogy of Matthew. But how could it be otherwise? For his name would be called Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And that means all his people. As we'll see next week. Past, present, and future. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.